Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. They are the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. God bless you, Zip Recruiter. You know what's not smart? Buying all your music on 8-Track. Who would do that? You know what is smart? Hiring with Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. parentheses based on Trustpilot rating of hiring sites with more than 1,000 reviews. End parentheses. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. And now our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here at Vox Media Headquarters in New York City. If you like this show, please tell someone else about it. Thank you. Here with Anthony Wood, CEO, founder of Roku. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the last time we sat and talked for a while. I think it was years ago. I think it was on a stage. Uh, In L.A. That's right. I remember that. And I asked you all the standard questions, which is, you're going to get crushed by Apple, crushed by Google, crushed by Amazon. What's going to happen? That was years ago. Since then, you went public? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Successfully? So far. I checked the market cap this morning. The company's worth about $7 billion. So things have gone well. Yeah, uh, we went public a year ago, and, you know, business is great. I mean, it's, uh, it's an awesome time to be in the streaming business. Yeah, I'm writing about another company that wants to raise a bunch of money, and you are now part of their pitch, which is, uh, oh, if Roku can go public, then then we ought to be able to raise this much money at a billion-dollar valuation because there's room for sort of lots of companies now to participate in the streaming boom. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the challenges with Roku going public was that this perception that we're a hardware company, yeah. which I think has, has largely gone away. Because you uh, used to sell hardware, and you still do. Uh, we still sell hardware, right? But our goal for selling hardware is to build active accounts. We're not trying to make money on on hardware. But my point was just that that was a challenge for us. And so we, we spend a lot of time with investors explaining our business model, which is about services and advertising, content distribution. And uh, and I was reading this report recently of a, of a company that was going public, and I was reading their Roadshow deck, and and uh, they said, uh, yeah, we have a service business. You should think of us like Roku. And I thought, wow, that must we must have been successful in convincing people we have a service business. That's great. You need some equivalent of, of uh, the Netflix and chill if you really want to sort of break through. I think that's probably added a couple billion dollars to Reed Hastings' market cap. Yeah, that's you could probably the reason they're that. successful. You, you have a longstanding relationship with Netflix. Yes, I've known Netflix for a long time. I used to work there for a while. You used to work there, and, and initially when you guys started the company, you were kind of a Netflix-adjacent company, right? Or are you really uh, – the initial story was well, – we tell the story. It was a Netflix box. Yeah, so box. Well, uh, Roku was started in 2002, and we built um, streaming media products. We had uh, internet radios. We had high-definition media players. We had digital signage, which we actually spun out into a separate company called BrightSign that's now very successful – and then, you know, uh, in the early years, I also would go talk to Netflix. And and, uh, and what, what what had you done at Netflix when you worked at Netflix? So I hadn't worked at Netflix oh, yet. Oh, I see. Okay. I was just saying I started Roku, and then I would we had some original products that, that were fairly successful. But then we also – I would go to Netflix, and I would say, you know, hey, you should – this was before they had streaming players. And, and I was like, we should work together on a streaming player. And they said, yep, we should do that. No, we shouldn't do that. So they went back and forth, and and, if, and we never really got to an agreement. And then they were uh, look, then they started doing a search for a VP of Internet TV, and I thought, well, you know, if you're not going to do a deal with Roku, maybe I should just 
see if I could do that for them and run Roku. And so actually I cut a deal or made a deal with Reed Hastings, the CEO, where I would go work at Netflix and run Roku. You were running your own company. Yeah. And had a full-time job at Netflix. Yeah. And it was, uh, and he was, you know, he's, he was, it was great that he would let me do that. And so I built out their streaming player group. I also started their licensing group that did, you know, the original deals with Xbox and So this is a Samsung. decade ago, roughly, right? This is 10 years ago. Yeah, because yeah. they've only been streaming for Right. 10 so years. this was about, the, this was the time they had just launched their beta streaming service on PCs only. Uh, and so I was, my job was to build a box and also, and, but I also said, hey, we should license this so, technology. So they knew they they, were, they wanted to stream stuff, and their assumption was most people don't have the hardware to actually get this stuff onto a TV. Right. So it's not just enough for us to put this onto the internet and push it out. Um, people can watch on their laptops. If we want to, if we want to get this on a TV, we've got to create a device. Right. People can do that, so we're going to build that ourselves. And That's right. We're going to build that. That's right. The original Netflix beta version when they launched it back then was for uh, on the web. It was on, you know you could watch it on your laptop. So anyway, I started building this box for them, and I built the team, and we got to the point. Where, and I also, like I said, I also started this very tiny group to license it to TV companies and to game manufacturers, and that actually went really well. And so, you know, the long story short is that they decided, well, we don't need to build our own box because this licensing strategy is working well. And so we, we struck a new deal where uh, that team I had incubated inside Netflix spun out and became part of Roku. Which was ongoing on the side, and that and that's how we got it. That's how so the, you started a company, went to work for Netflix, kept running the same company, right. left Netflix, brought the team that you'd built up at Netflix back to your original company. That's right. That is a unique round trip. Yeah, and uh, it worked out really well. And then we finished up that box and shipped three months later. Shipped it. It was the first Netflix player, and that's how we got into the. And was it called the Netflix box? It was, was, it was it sort of branded as a Netflix box? It at the was time? called. It was the Netflix player by Roku. That was the first product. And then we, after that, we quickly added an app store and started bringing on other, you know, other services besides Netflix. And then we changed the name from uh, Netflix player to a, you know, stre- the Roku streaming player. Right. And up until recently, I mean, it was looking through S1 a while ago, Netflix was almost entirely, it was the bulk of, of what was happening on Roku players even, even up until a couple years ago. Mm, no, the streaming on Roku has been diversifying for years. I mean, yeah. of course, it used to be 100% Netflix. Right. But uh, and on an absolute basis, Netflix streaming is the same or goes up. Uh-huh. But on a percentage of hours, it ticks down every quarter. You know, I think the last number we gave Netflix was less than a third. Should we back up and, and we're seven minutes into this and explain what Roku is for anyone who's still listening who doesn't know what Roku is? Sure. You guys sell boxes you that allow you to stream stuff, on, get, get streaming video content onto your TV. You license software that goes onto TVs like the TCL I just bought mm-hmm. from Costco. It's great. And, and now you are selling advertising and other services for the people who are distributing that stuff. That's right. So our, our business is uh, the way we think about the way I think about it is we're a platform for television distribution, and we build scale of our platform by selling these players, uh, which we're well known for, but and we're the market leader in, and also licensing to TV companies. And and in fact, uh, the last number we put out which is the most recent data we have, is 25% of all smart TVs sold in the United States are running the Roku operating system. So that's how we build our scale of our platform, and we don't really make money doing that. The way we generate uh, our gross profit as a company is we get paid for distributing content. So when you when we you know send you an email and get you to sign up for HBO, then we get a percentage of that subscription revenue. Uh-huh. But our biggest business is advertising. So if you think about the fact that all... 
TV viewing is moving to streaming. That means all TV advertising is moving to streaming. And, we, and the Roku platform includes a very advanced, sophisticated TV ad platform. In, we're in New York today because uh, Roku's New York office is all about ad sales. And so, you know, most of the ad age top 200 advertisers now advertise on Roku. Was this the model you had in mind when you, when you came back from Netflix with a team you'd built up there? You said, we are going to start putting out hardware, and then over time we're going to transition into a services company? Or did you have to grow yourself into that idea? No, our strategy has never changed. Like, our strategy has always been to be a, a platform uh, for television, a next-generation internet TV platform, and then to make money on services. Now, the exact services, we 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 tried a bunch of different things. You know, we knew advertising was a big possibility. Uh, we also knew, you know, we tried games, actually, selling games. We, you know, Signing up subscribers to services has always been something we've done. So we've tried a few things, and the things that really worked the best were advertising and uh, subscription. But it was services. always we're going to be a we're going to be a digital company, not a box company. The box is a is a method of getting our platform into someone's house. That's correct. And was there ever any pushback from investors or anybody else saying, "Well, you know, services are great, but right now we're just struggling just to get the internet into someone's house and to get them to stream something." So why don't you concentrate on turning a profit on these devices you're selling? The funding cycle for Roku was originally I funded it myself, and then we ended up doing a first round of venture capital. And when we did that pitch, the pitch was definitely, "Look, we're going to build a platform and we're going to make money on services." That was the whole that from was the, the get go, from the beginning. That was in the original investor pitches. And then when we, you know, when we raised money from uh, News Corp after the venture round, we did a. Uh, strategic, you know, round with News Corp led that. And again, it was all about the services and content distribution and the way TV's changing. That's always been our pitch. It was hard. You know, a lot of investors were skeptical early on when we didn't have any service revenue, when all our revenue was just hardware. Right, because there's a long period where you're saying, look, one day we're going to be this, today we're a device company. I never said we were a device company. Right. But that's we, sell, what, we sell devices. But and, that's what your P&L would say. Uh, that's is. what the p yeah, that's correct. So, you know, it was hard It was hard in the early days to get investors uh, to believe, but we got enough to believe that we did, you know, we funded the company. And, so, and, and just and, and to go back to current day, you're what, 22 million users? Or you, yeah, 22 million active accounts. Active users. That's, that's someone who's streaming something through one of your devices. Uh, so not, we think of it as a household. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's, not, it's not just one person. And uh, it means they've streamed in the last 30 days. And how many of them are, are people like me who are buying a TV set and it happens to have Roku installed, and so once I turn it on, I become an active user? Yeah, so the majority of our active users are still people who own a streaming player, but uh, the fastest-growing segment are TVs. And TVs, you know, it, we're on the bubble right now of, of TVs about to pass players in terms of generating new accounts. Uh -huh. So uh, I think, you know, people often ask me, are, are streaming players going to go away? You know, people will just get it built into TV. And we sell millions of streaming players. It, you know, it's our market share is actually growing. It's a great way for us to get active accounts. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. But TVs are definitely uh, the most strategic avenue for us because when you buy a Roku TV, you know, you turn on the TV and you see the Roku home screen. So it, it puts us in a great position right. to recommend content uh, and to help you decide what to watch. And I remember when you guys said, oh, we're moving into TVs, here's our TV strategy, you announced a bunch of licensing deals, and they were all with mostly Chinese companies that I hadn't heard of, right. n not the Samsungs of the world, not the Sonys of the world. I thought, well, that's, I mean, I, I understand why you were doing it, but that's going to be difficult for you to break through. Did you have confidence that the TCLs of the world were going to be sort of a, a big brand, even though no one knew about them at the time? 
Well, yeah. the U.S. knew about them. Right. I mean, we had a strategy. Uh, we sat down and thought, okay, what kinds of companies should we license to? And if you look at, I mean, this was early on, we, we, we said, okay, well, if you look at the trends in TVs, you know, originally TV companies were American, you know, RCA and Zenith, then Japanese companies took over, Sony and Panasonic. These days, there's almost no Japanese companies that actually make TVs anymore except for Sony, like Toshiba, Sharp, those are all licensed brands yeah. now. Then the Korean companies became dominant, you know, Samsung and LG. But now the Chinese companies are the only ones gaining a market share and everyone else is losing market share. So the next wave we felt was going to be Chinese companies. If you just look at the economics of TV, you know, the Chinese companies are vertically integrated. They control most of the manufacturing and it was clear they were going to become the dominant players. And so we decided, well, we'll bet on Chinese companies. And also they're more willing to work with us. If you're Samsung, you know, you're very proud of your TV software and it's hard. And you, you spent know, a lot of time building up you your spent, OS and, right. and and you're very proud right. of it and you've got big right. grand up plans for that and so you right. don't need Roku to come and show you how to create an operating system for the internet. That's right. And so uh, that strategy has been super successful for us. TCL, for example, unknown in the U.S., when they started working with us, they were number 24 in market share. They're the third biggest TV company in the U.S. now. Did you have a sense that they would grow that quickly? I mean, again, I don't—I literally think I had not heard of them until I knew I needed to buy a new TV, went to the New York Times Wirecutter site, researched what's the best TV, and they said, you should go buy this one. It's from TCL. I said, okay. I, I mean, frankly, I wouldn't have bought it had not—if I hadn't had an endorsement from a place like that that I'd heard of, I thought, this is some weird brand I'm not, I'm not going to buy. Right. Well, I think I think we help. I mean, they're a great partner. They they're a very low cost manufacturer, vertically integrated. They make great quality TVs. But I think certainly our software and our brand has helped them be successful in the U.S. It's been a great partnership. I mean, yes, we felt like this strategy will work. Now it worked really well, and we were, you know, maybe a little surprised how well it worked yeah. so quickly. But that was the plan from the beginning. And it's not just TCL. I mean, TCL is a great partner, but we also have. A lot of other Chinese manufacturers that are partners. There's, uh, I think, 10 or 11 different brands now that license the Roku TV. And also in the TV business, the other big strategy for us was work with retailers. So the, the retailers actually are the most powerful players in the TV distribution business. Like They control, other than maybe Samsung, the way TV distribution works is the Walmart and Best Buy's TV buyer says, hey, I think I'll buy, you know, I think I'll sort six different, I'm just making up these numbers, like six different 42-inch TVs, and I want these kind of features, and this yep. is how much I'm going to pay, and TV company number one, would you like to sell us those TVs? Nope. Okay, TV no company number two, we'll take yours. And so, you know, working closely with the retailers, creating reasons for them to want to sell Roku TVs was also an important part of our strategy. And, and again, it's not a coincidence when I walked into Costco. I mean, I knew what I was going to buy anyway, but that's the first TV you see, right? Right when you walk in the entrance, at least in this case, was a big old TCL TV with Roku. Yeah, we put a lot of us, TCL, we put a lot of work into yeah. making that happen. Did you, did you realize that, again, when you were building this company years ago, that you were one day going to have to go wrangle with Costco and Walmart, and I assume you're going to Bentonville and making trips like that, explaining why they ought to put, you stuff, put your stuff in, in prime slots like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been selling. I mean, Roku has been selling retail products from the beginning, and so getting distribution, you know, flying out to retailers and talking to buyers is, is standard operating procedure in our business. I think a lot of folks I talk to probably are not used to sort of, how do I deal with a retail channel, and why do I have to do, deal with a retail channel, and why can't I just sell this stuff my, on, my, on my own through mm -hmm. my website? It's the right. internet. Well, you know, when we started selling Rokus, actually we sold them online only. The originally, uh, sorry, the Roku Street Netflix players. I mean, yeah. other Roku products were in retail, but we decided, well, we'll start with Netflix online only. 
And then when we flipped, when we turned on retail a couple of years later, they had a dramatic, I mean, sales really picked up. Retail's, you know, we sell a lot of products in Walmart. Retail's an important And you're comfortable sort of going out and making the case. And I mean, there's some people who really relish that sort of. Me personally? Yeah, you personally. Well, I don't do that personally. You you get someone else (laughs) to go make the case for you. We have sales teams. Um, You know, in in the early days, of course, I used to do it. And and it wasn't the favorite part of my job, but I, I know how to do it. So uh, it was an important thing to do. But these days, you know, there's a thousand employees at Roku and we have uh, experts that call on th- those companies. I mean, of course, you know, big strategic relationships like with Walmart, I, I do spend, you know, time on that. I, I go meet with them in Bentonville. I know you were skeptical about podcasting when you walked in. You said, this is a nice room for a podcast, but it is a real business and we actually make money here through advertising. So we're going to hear from one of our fine sponsors. We'll be right back with Anthony Wood. Hey, Recode Media listeners, do you like listening to other people talk about podcasting? You probably do since you listen to Recode Media, which means you are going to like The Wolf Den from Midroll Media. Over the past seven years, this show has chronicled the growth of the podcasting industry and the people who make those podcasts. Some recent guests include Overcast creator Marco Arment and the guys who made HeadGum. That's Jake Hurwitz, Amir Blumenfeld, and Marty Michael. Another guest, although this doesn't say this in the uh, text, is Peter Kafka. I'm on a very old episode of this podcast, and I can't remember listening to it, but I think it's good. You'll like it. They've also talked to producers and executives from The Onion, NBC, Gimlet, and PRX, and don't forget Peter Kafka. Once again, the name of the show is The Wolf Den. It's hosted by Midroll Media's Chief Business Development Officer, Lex Friedman. Midroll owns the podcasting platform Stitcher. They'd prefer that you listen to it there, but they will be happy if you listen to it anywhere. That's The Wolf Den. You can listen to it on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you hear podcasts just like this one. I'm back with Anthony Wood, who's drinking one of our fine matcha. Is it matcha or matcha? Green TV. Yep. Uh, green tea. Sorry, not TV. See? That's how we can afford that stuff, through ads. I want to hear more about the business today, but I wanted to start – I wanted to talk a bit about how you got here personally. You were mentioning that, that you don't love sales yourself. I'm assuming you're an engineer by trade, by Yeah, my, back, my background is uh, I'm a nerd. I grew up I – I taught myself to program computers when I was 13. What kind of uh, computer were, were you working on? Uh, well, in in middle school, I grew up in Texas, and in middle but in middle school, I went to um, I, we moved to Holland for two years, and I went to the American School at the Hague, and they had a um, they had a PDP eleven in a room in the corner. I don't know the PDP eleven. It's a mini computer. You know, this was right before, right about the time Apple twos came out. I remember the Commodore PET. Yep. Well, I, when I was in Holland, uh, they also I used to go to this computer museum, which was in downtown Holland, and they had a bunch of um, they had a Commodore PET, uh, which I also used to program on tape decks. And we had tape machines. I was trying to explain to my kids how yep. you would load a program using a cassette tape, but of course they don't know what a cassette tape is, so they just looked at me blankly. I still have my cassette tapes with my programs on them. And what was what were you thinking early on? I want this. I want computer programming is a is a business for me. It's a life for me. It's the thing I want to do. Or was it some other path? Oh well, early on, I mean, I don't. You know, I wasn't thinking about those kinds of things. I mean, the way I got into business was. Uh, I mean, I guess I've always been interested in business. I mean, I grew up, you know, uh, not poor, but you know, sort of. Middle, lower middle class. What your folks do? My dad was uh, in sa- well, he was a uh, mechanical engineering drafting, and then he moved into sales. Uh-huh. And uh, I was born in the UK, and he uh, he got a job uh, at Lockheed, and that's how we ended up in the US. And uh, and I was always I would I would do things when I when I was young, like you know we lived our, there was a golf course behind our house, and I used to go and 
find the golf balls in the creek and sell them back to the golfers. So I was always interested in like ways to make money. So you were a nerd who, who also va- valued commerce. Correct. Yeah. That's right. The, a, a commerce valuing nerd. So, I, you know, little things like that. But as far as my career, I didn't really give it much thought. But early on, I started writing programs. I had a TRS-80, you know, which was one of the first microcomputers. Yeah. And uh, I wrote some programs and software, and I, and I would try and get them published. And they, they, uh, I got some published in some magazines, but, but mostly they got rejected. And I thought, well, if they're not going to publish them, I'll sell them. And so that's, that's how I started selling computer what was your, software. What was your breakthrough piece of self-written software? I would say my first hit was in college. I had a Commodore Amiga computer, which yep. was the, the step know, up from the Commodore. There was 64. the pet. There was the pet you mentioned. Then the sixty Commodore sixty four. Then the Amiga. That's right. So, which, and uh, so I had an Amiga, and I wrote I wrote software and designed some hardware. So I, this this was back in nineteen eighty six, I guess. And computers were just starting to get multimedia capabilities. So the Amiga was popular because it, it had an eight bit sound playback, you know, playback 8-bit digital sound, and it became the first sort of desktop video uh, production computer. But anyway, I, wrote, I built this product called Perfect Sound, which uh, would record audio. So it could play back digital audio. It's the first computer that could play back digital audio, but it couldn't record it. So this Perfect Sound would let you record the audio and let you edit it like you're doing with your podcast. And then, and so I sold that for $99. And, and again, just to spell this out, there was no internet. If you wanted to distribute your software, you did it through magazines. Uh, yeah, or, or stores, or stores, magazines, or stores. Trade shows too, I think. Uh, yep, we went to trade. We go to sell, trade shows sell and sell stuff. Sell your software at a trade show. Yep, that we used to do that. That was fun. At what point did you go? Oh, I want to build a multimedia streaming box company that will eventually become a platform. Uh, well, I did. You know, I did this Perfect Sound, which was a digital audio re- recording and editing software for consumers. It was just for fun back then. It was like almost like a game, and uh, we sold a lot of them. It was a top hit for the Commodore Amiga. You know, then we did some other products, but then I graduated from college and I moved to California uh, and I started a company doing professional digital audio stuff. So uh, nonlinear editing systems like today it would be Avid and DigiDesign. You were building these things. Yeah. And that was the first products where I I built those and sold those and made a a decent amount of money. So that's where I sort of had some first commercial success. So I've been doing audio digital stuff, you know, all my early career. And then the internet became popular, and I thought, well, that's going to be big. Why don't I do some internet software? And so I started doing internet software, uh, and that company got bought by Macromedia and you know, became a core technology. And that gave you enough resources to start Roku? Nope. Then yeah. I started, uh, after that, I started Replay TV, the first DVR right, company. Right, right. Yeah, I did that for, for a few years. It was Replay and TiVo were sort of neck right. and neck for a while. Yep, we were the first two DVR companies. We, Replay was actually first, which people probably don't realize. TiVo won sort of the marketing war. There. Yeah. And then after Replay, Replay got bought. Uh, it's now got sold a few times. It's now owned by DirecTV, the technology. And um, then I started Roku. Started Roku. And then, again, had this idea. I'm, I get the internet. I get media. I see how they're going to work together. I can see far enough out that I can make the leap from devices to advertising and services. Yeah, it was clear that the world was going to, for television world was going to shift to streaming, that everything was going to be available on demand. The timing was a little less clear. So, I mean, I started Roku was sort of like, well, that'll be a big thing, but we'll just build sort of multimedia, you know, digital gadgets that are the convergence of media and the internet and consumer. And so we built, you know, a, a few different products. And the streaming player, of course, is the one that became super big. 
And you said you started that in 2002? Yep, late 2002. We're 2018. Again, now you buy, you walk into a Costco, you buy a TV. It's impossible not to buy an internet TV. doesn't right. mean you're going to connect it to the internet, but they, it's all now standard. Is that the timeline that you projected? You thought this is going to be a 16-year project? Did you think it was going to happen sooner, later? Uh, I think the timing is roughly what we projected. I remember I went, remember going back and looking at a business plan that we did like in 2008 and uh, – it's, you know, it's close. This wasn't exact. So I mentioned the beginning when I, when I talked to you last time on a stage, I had a bunch of the, standard questions. What's going to happen when Google crushes you? What's going to happen when Amazon crushes you? At the time, we spent a lot of time thinking about Apple's streaming ambitions. They're all going to crush you and or buy you. I know Amazon looked at buying you for a while. Why have you been able to survive and flourish competing against companies with enormous resources, much more than yours? Yeah, well, I who think— all, who all, By the way, who, you, know, you can argue that this isn't their core, but they all take the living room and TV and streaming seriously. Well, first of all, just people—this is a common question. I, I just would remind people that um, those companies used to be small, and they had competitors, and they—like it, like normally happens in the tech business. You know, when Google, for example, started Search, well, Yahoo was huge, and who would have thought you could start a new search company? And, uh, you know, in the tech business, superior technology often wins. Uh, and tech companies basically compete on how smart their employees are and the quality of their products. So that, that's one thing. But, but I would say that, um, you know, in the case of Roku, if you, the big, I'll, I'll give you the big picture answer and then some examples. So the big picture is if you think about when new computing platforms have emerged, the software platform has always changed. So if you go back, we were talking about PCs back in the early days. Well, before PCs, there were mini computers like that PDP-11. You know, those had their own operating systems. Those operating systems didn't make the transition to PCs. Instead, an operating system designed for PCs, Windows, became the dominant operating system on PCs. And then when phones became a, a computing platform, Windows didn't make that transition. You know, no one's running Windows these days on their phone. They're running Android or iOS. And so it's the same thing. Uh, you know, when new computing platforms emerge, an operating system or a platform built specifically and optimized for that platform wins. So that was phones. And then right now, where TVs are becoming a computing platform in their own right. And what you've got is the incumbents trying to take their Android software and their iOS software, their, PC, their phone software, and port it to a TV. And so the same thing that was tried in the past and failed, is they're trying again. And that's their natural inclination. But what Roku has done is we've built a purpose-built platform designed from the ground up for TV. And so it's better for TVs. It's, got, it's just got intrinsic advantages versus porting a, a mobile operating system. So you think it's a technical advantage that you guys have over Apple and Google and Amazon? Yep, that's the core of it. And then, of course, you know, there's other things. We're much more focused. Like we come, all we do is we come to work every day. And we, uh, you know, we think about how to make TV better. You know, those companies, yes, they're, they're great companies, but they come to work thinking about how can I sell a bunch of shoes? How can I be better at search? How can I build, sell more phones? TV's on their list, but it's at the bottom of their list. I got to say, from, from both the outside and as someone who's been streaming a lot of video for a bunch of years and, and, and has had an Apple TV for a bunch of years and still has one, mm -hmm. you can make pros and cons for either, at least on the user side, for, for either of your software. But they all fundamentally do the same thing. They get Netflix onto my TV, and that's great. When I look at your success, I think you guys have, have had some combination of strategy and, 
and maybe something else that has allowed you to get your boxes into people's homes and to get your software onto those boxes. Apple could certainly have licensed their software to a TCL or whoever else. They seem to have made some decisions that they didn't want to do that for whatever reason. Right. I'm not saying that they couldn't do it technically. I'm saying that you have this innovator's dilemma. They've got big existing businesses, and they want to leverage that for their new business. And this is what they always do. This is, you know, it's not that Microsoft can build a phone operating system. They just, they just decided we'll port Windows to the phone. Mm-hmm. It's not that, you know, the PDP eleven company couldn't can make. PC but they wanted to, Microsoft wanted to extend Windows and looked at phones that way instead of looking at phones as a yeah. Instead of saying, hey, let's just throw all that work away. Let's just start from the ground up and build something completely optimized for phones. They, it's just not their. Instinct, and it's also just you know these things. You got to remember the evolution of these new computing platforms is they start out really small, and then suddenly one day they're big, and so these companies, you know, when they're small, they're why should we, you know, why should we spend time on that? So first of all, they don't spend a lot of time on it in the early days, and then they want to take their existing infrastructure and technology, and they want to just embrace the new platform. So for example, you know, well, so what's better about Roku software? Well, uh, you know, a big one is that phones are expensive, like they cost a lot of money, they're supercomputers. Uh, TVs are cheap. The, the main board on a TV is $25, and TVs are brutally cost competitive, no one makes money in the TV business. So we build, our software runs on low-cost TVs. It costs less to build a TV with Roku software. And you know when you're trying to, when you're trying to get 50 cents off your bill of materials so that you can win a Black Friday special at Walmart, the amount of money you save by cutting your RAM in half and your CPU in half and running Roku software, which actually has great performance and more content, is huge. It's the difference between getting distribution and not getting distribution in Walmart. Do you think because you're the challenger, you're willing to make concessions or business arrangements that an Apple or a Google wouldn't make because they would say, particularly Apple, it seems so. They seem very particular about distribution. The details matter. So each of these companies have their own strategy, and they have their own reasons for doing TV products. None of those companies have the reason of, we want to build the best cutting-the-cord box possible. They have reasons that involve getting broader distribution for their their, their proprietary platform, yeah. their ecosystem, or their services. And so Roku is the only company that actually says, hey, we want to build a product that has the most content, is the best cord cutting box possible, and is extremely inexpensive. It costs $29, and is super simple to use. The other thing is just, again, focusing on the specific market. The natural inclination for a lot of companies is we'll use HTML. But HTML has a lot of downsides. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's designed for PCs and phones that have lots of computing power. It, it encourages the use of HTML frameworks that are produce more complicated user interfaces. So again, it's just it's like these details matter, and so the result is a, a user interface that's just like it's a little bit harder to use, costs a little bit more to build. Yeah, it'll run Netflix, but it costs more and it's harder to use. And so, why would you buy that when there's something that's uh, easier to use and costs less? You call this a cutting the cord box. You're explicit about that, but a lot of your distribution and partnerships have been with people who professionally distribute TV, right? Uh, you mentioned uh, Dish, uh, isn't it? I mean, you didn't mention it. But Dish has been an investor. You work with them. Uh, Sky in the UK you work with. Mm-hmm. Um, when I tried to cut the cord with what's now Charter, they said, well, do you have a, do you have a Roku TV? Because if so, you can stream our stuff through them. We've got an app. It's actually a lousy app, but I don't think that's your fault. How have you managed to work with people who are still in the traditional TV distribution business? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. We we um, and, and in our early days, we used to avoid talking about 
cable cutting the cord and stuff because we didn't want to annoy our partners. But I think one of our goals is to be a good partner, uh, a good partner for our TV partners, a good partner for our retailers, a good partner for our content partners. And we have we have MVPDs that are partner that are good partners as well. We have, you know, the Xfinity app on Roku. Um, you know, we distribute, like you said, we distribute uh, streaming players through DirecTV, AT&T stores, you know, through Sling, which is owned by Dish. So I would say that the answer is we try and be a good partner. For a long time, they, you know, resisted the trend. But I think now most companies realize they, you know, people are moving to Internet for TV and they need to embrace that. And so uh, and we're, we want to help them. So the, the, the new thesis is... Streaming's for real. It's going to happen. And now you see people like John Stanky from AT&T slash Time Warner saying there's going to be a handful of big players. There's going to be a Netflix maybe and an Apple and AT&T, Time Warner. There's going to be this consolidation. Um, there's going to be five or six dominant sort of streaming platforms. So all of those should work with your devices and software. So that makes sense. But it seems like if, if that world happens, it's going to be difficult for you to sort of get money out of those folks. Already, maybe this has changed, but in your S1 at least, you said, we don't really make any money from Netflix, even though that's a dominant channel from us. And you don't make any money from YouTube. Um, If there's a handful of dominant streaming players, streaming providers, how are you going to be able to convince them to cut you into their business? Um, Well, just let me correct some misconception. We we, we didn't say we don't make money from Netflix. We said we don't have a material material business, uh, a material amount of money from Netflix. And, you know, we do make money... When a customer uses a Roku, the first thing they see on the home screen is a Roku ad. Yeah. They don't often realize it's an ad because it's we try and make it content-oriented and useful for the customer, but we do get paid. And so we get paid for every customer. You know, and then we sell buttons on their mode. But anyway, to answer your question, I agree that, well, I don't think there's just going to be, you know, five apps ultimately, but I, I do think we are going to start to see some consolidation, uh, which is one of the reasons that we launched the Roku channel. You know, we, uh, if Explain you can, what the Roku channel is. So the Roku channel is a channel that Roku, own and operate channel that Roku publishes, a streaming channel or an app. And it started out as m- movies and TV shows. We added news and we're going to keep adding other content categories. It's free, ad supported. So if you think, if you think about the, our strategy, our strategy with the Roku channel has sort of two big pieces, right? One piece is that the interface on, the, on a Roku is going to evolve from the way it works today, which is an interface of apps or what we call streaming channels, to a more content-first user interface. So when you turn on your Roku on the home screen, you'll see content recommendations. So for us, the Roku channel is the way we're starting to, is our sandbox for building that content-first experience. And eventually, it'll become more prominent, might even end up as the home screen someday. So that that's one, and there will be, and I do believe there will be consolidation. And so a lot of companies that are making their own apps today will realize and are starting to realize it. You know, really, we should, we're not, our expertise is not being a direct-to-consumer service. We have great content, but we don't have the skills and we don't sell ads. We don't have the skills in machine learning and data to do recommendations. You know, there's a lot of things that uh, we don't do billing. There's a lot of pieces that. Yeah, that but they're all like, saying they want to learn that now really quickly. Right. For, but, for a long time, they were content not to do it. Now they're all spending billions of dollars trying to figure out how to do it. The big guys. There's a lot of companies, I think, that are, you might think of big, but, but are actually mid-tier that will end up saying, you know, it's a lot easier for us to get distribution by doing deals with the scale distribution partners. We'll go deal with Roku and let them handle all that stuff, for example. Because you guys are essentially becoming a cable company, 
right? You were going to become a pipe, and they, and they were going to go through you. And we're a distrib- some value. We're a content distribution company. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so, and I think I think that, that what will happen is content will will get distributed on these large scale content distribution companies, of which Roku is the leader. Other big ones would be Amazon. You know, maybe Netflix, uh, Netflix is, but a little bit Netflix specific, and maybe some of these virtual MVPDs will. Will end up being Disney that. and AT&T, uh, Disney, Disney, yeah. So, you know. So anyway, so for us, there's this goal of building a content, what we call a content-first UI, where people can publish their content on Roku, and it will get as will get sold, it'll get merchandised or it'll get billed, and that'll all be automatic. And so, we will be one of those consolidation points as content starts to consolidate. So you're both going to be a, di- a distributor of other people's stuff, or you're going to distribute the Netflixes and YouTubes and AT&T Time Warners of the world, and you're building up your own sort of channel that you think is going to become one of those dominant That's right. hubs as well. That's right. And because on Roku's, we, we own the home screen, we, have a, we just have an intrinsic advantage, and we believe on Roku's platforms will be the easiest, best way to get that sort of content. Now, there's always going to be exclusive content, and channels like Netflix, and yeah. you're always going to want to run Netflix, and so of course we'll make those available as well. But there's going to be tons and tons of content that's not necessarily exclusive that we will make available direct. When I, when I turned on my brand new TV, which I love talking about, and I put on Netflix, it said, "Hey, you've got a 4K TV. It looks like. Do you want to do you want to pay me an extra four bucks a month? I think it was uh, to get 4K content." And I said, I'm "Just really curious to see what happened." I said, "Okay, I hit a button. It said, great. Now you have it. Do you participate in that exchange at all? Are you are you getting any money out of that deal?" Uh, we, additional four our general our general business model is that uh, for subscription services like Netflix, when we sign up a customer, right. we get a share of the revenue. Um, but in this case, I was already signed up. This is an upsell. Yeah, so it depends on the specifics of the contract. We 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 also generally get shares of the upsells. So Netflix is you know unique. They're Netflix, but and we do have a deal with Netflix. But in general, it's the non Netflixes of the world where we make most of our our money. Right. The smaller players that have a little Netflix has a lot of leverage, and you have also a relationship that goes not, back. Not just them. smaller. I mean, we get ones that. Uh, I mean, Netflix is unique in that most people have Netflix. Yeah. No one else is like that. You know, when we get paid, we get paid when we sign up a new subscriber. So if you already have the subscription, then right. we, we don't get paid. And so you get a bounty for signing up an HBO. Well, it's not a bounty. It's we get a rev share for the life of that subscriber. So you sign up an HBO customer. Right. You participate in that. And then advertising you talked about is a big part of your business. There is a trend, um, at least in part of the streaming world, away from ads, right? Netflix is ad-free. Uh, HBO is ad-free. Uh, you can get ad-free versions of CBS, Hulu, et cetera. Lots of folks still stick with the ad services. But do you worry at all that, that there's going to be a push away from advertising? Um, among a, a big segment of your of your customer base? No, not at all. I mean, that is a common. That's another. You know, this question is a pretty common question. But the, that's what uh, I do. I ask the obvious questions. <laughs> it's a common question by smart people. Um, that this idea that you know, because people think of Netflix as, as kind of creating the streaming revolution, and there's no ads on Netflix. But if but why do people cut the cord? They cut the cord for two reasons. One is they cut it because they, it's a better experience. Streaming is a you know, there's like tons of content you can pay for just what you want to pay for. It's on demand, it's a much better experience. And then, uh, but they cut the cord to save money as well. And so we don't think people want to replicate their large cable bundle costs on, in the streaming world. So we think what will happen is, and what we see is that consumers will sign up for you know, a small number of SVOD services, Netflix, maybe one or two others. But then they want to supplement that with a lot of free content. And in fact, the, probably the number one 
uh, question we get in search on Roku.com is from pre-sales is what can I get on Roku for free? And so people will tolerate advertising if they get free content and they understand that value exchange and they're comfortable with that. Absolutely. And I think ad loads are going to come down. Like the Roku channel, which is a free ad-supported channel, we, we run half the ad load of traditional TV, so there'll be less ads. But the CPMs of the ads are, go- are going up as they become targeted and scarcer. Again, the, the idea of targeted TV advertising, we had Dave Morgan to talk about this, as people have been talking about it for years, still really sort of nascent. Um, and anyone who's watched Hulu or any sort of ad-supported streaming TV is used to the idea of seeing the same commercial over and over, clearly because they haven't sold it. How far off are, are we from real targeting and, and actually understanding maybe who I am and what I might want to watch and not watch or buy and not buy? Well, Roku's every ad served on Roku is targeted, 100% targeted, one-to-one, personalized. And now advertisers can buy lightly targeted ads. You know, they might, especially, that's often how they start because they're used to buying Nielsen demographics. One of our targeting segments is Nielsen demographics. So if you want to target, uh, you know, 18 to 34-year-old males, you can do that. But if you want to target people in the market for a car that make over $100,000 a year, you can do that as well. If you want to target people who live in New York City, you can do that. If you want to target people with pets, you can do that. And so that is the future, and that is how we sell our ads. Like, we don't sell ads today by shows or by brands. or by We sell everything by audience. But that said, the main reason TV advertisers are moving to Roku is because they're following their audience. So as people switch to streaming, if you want to advertise on TV to those those viewers, you have to run streaming ads. And so, for example, Nielsen put out a, some data recently that said that uh, 10% of Americans in the 18 to 34-year-old demographic are only reachable on Roku. So if you want to a- reach those customers, you need to advertise on Roku. So, But what happens in, when there's a new advertising platform is the viewers move first, and then the advertisers start to fall with a, a lag. That's for every platform. For every platform. And, and, and it, there's a lot of, of really smart business people and smart tech guys who have and, – and women uh, – who have failed because the ad market didn't follow them as quickly as they thought. And they keep saying, look, no, all the eyeballs are over here. And the ad guys say, great. Our ad business is growing over 100 percent year over year. It's just a great business. And the, they are coming. Uh, you know, I mean uh, – and we are leading the way on that. I mean, a, a couple of years ago when we started selling ads, the advertisers were very skeptical. Yep. These days, you don't have to convince them. You just have to decide, get them to decide how much money they should move over. So you don't have to spend time convincing them, explaining them how this stuff works now. They get it. Well, there's still a lot of work, uh, but it's a lot easier than it used to be. How, again, when, I, when we talked a while ago, you weren't public. You were still raising money. Um, it looked for a couple of years like you were ready to go public. You delayed that. You finally went. It looks like it's worked out well. What has surprised you about that process? What did you not expect about running a public company? I was surprised by how similar it is to running a private company. Yeah? I mean, yeah, a lot of people say, well, isn't it, don't you hate being public? Isn't that hard? Well, everything's changed. But, you know, the reality is Roku was, it's not like the old days when people, companies went public with $10 million in sales. I mean, Roku had uh, substantial sales when we went public. We already put in place most of the infrastructure of a public company just because we were a bigger company. The only thing that's really changed for us is, you know, a little more discipline on information. You know, we can't be quite as transparent as we used to be. Uh, there's a, but there's a lot of great things. You know, the stock stock is publicly traded. That makes it easier to hire employees. It makes it allows anyone in the public to invest in Roku and be part of the, you know, our experience. So 
you hear one school of thought, people say, oh, you, you get this quarterly reporting and you have to spend all this time um, putting out these reports and it, it, it shortens your focus. There's another school of thought that says this is a great discipline for, for running a company because you can't hide problems. seems like you're at least on the second – you seem okay with it. Yeah, I mean, we, already, we were already doing quarterly reports to our board. They're more detailed and there's a lot of audits, but there's not a lot of change, you know. How close did you get to selling the company? Um, I'd written about the fact that, that Amazon was looking at you guys. Was that their decision not to buy you? Was it your decision not to sell? You know, when I, you know, I had the luck of um, making you know a fair amount of money early on in my career. I've had some successful. Roku means six in Japanese. It's my sixth company. The, the prior companies, many of them were very successful. So I, I had, I, I don't want to sell Roku. Like, of course, you know, we would look at any offer seriously, but. It's not like, uh, you know, I, I feel like we need to sell Roku's, you know, for my personal financial reasons. And, uh, and I also am a big believer that we're in the By the way, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to, at least on the record, who said the fact that I have made money in a prior life changes the way I look at selling or not selling this company. Oh, really? Thank you for your honesty. Oh, that's it's a you're big the deal. First. No, it's a big deal, I'm sure. Well, everyone thinks that. So they just the, don't say it. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know why they don't say it. It's obvious. But the more important thing is like is all about leaving upside on the table. So if you think a company will be successful, other than like you need, you'd like to get some cash to change your life. Why would you sell it? I mean, it's going to be worth more in the future. So, I think we're in the early days of streaming. I think Roku, you know, will power almost every TV in the world. That's a hugely valuable company. If I sold it, now, if we sold the company now, we'd be leaving all that upside. We'd be giving that upside to whoever buys the company. And the so, Amazon thing that I'm talking about was a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago. I don't know anything about Amazon. That was all rumors. No, it wasn't rumors. You can't be honest with me in one sentence and then be not honest in the other. That's all right. You don't have to talk about it, but I get to ask. Um, we'll move off into the future. You came up with a line of speakers recently. Mm -hmm. I understand why lots of companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, want to get into speakers. They're all launching smart speakers. Yours is not a super smart speaker. There's not, a, there's not an AI there's no Alexa, Siri equivalent in there. What's the point of building out speakers for you guys and other hardware? Yeah, I mean, Roku is all about making TV better. How can we make TV better? And there's, we, we believe there's lots of room to continue to innovate. We, I mean, we've, we've innovated a lot. We you know, did the first Netflix player. We did the first app store for TVs. We, did, uh, we were the first to ship almost every major service. We invented the stick form factor for streaming players, the streaming stick. We invented uh, private listening where you can plug a headphone into your remote control and not bother people while you're watching TV. So innovation is, a, is at the core of one of the reasons we're successful. And we still think there's lots of room to make TV better. And one of the things about TVs is as they get thinner, this audio quality gets worse. And so a lot of people want to add soundbars or home theater systems, yep. and, and the desire for that is just getting bigger. Uh, but it's hard for you know mortals to enhance the audio, to hook up audio to their, their TV. And, then, and if they're successful, then they often end up with multiple remotes and all this stuff. So why, you know, why, why can't you connect a speaker to your TV by just plugging into power and just having it connect? So as someone who's more? struggling to connect my TCL Roku to my Vizio soundbar that I yeah. also bought. To, oh, you should to, totally get a Roku speaker. Well, I wish I And it's got this whole lag problem. But so I, I get why as a consumer I might want to buy from the same. Well, this lag problem is a good one. Like that you get all these because these things don't really work well together. 
the audio gets out of sync. And what, so we control the software in the speakers and the TV. We can have, we can produce a product. So I get as a consumer why I might want to do this. Yeah. Um, I'm very frustrated. So that solves a problem for me. On your end, though, you've already, your business you've already explained is selling services and advertising. So selling me a soundbar. I don't see how that helps you unless that, that you're making margin there that you're not making on the right. TVs. Well, our business model is to uh, sell a, a lot of TVs and then monetize those TVs. So yeah. in the get you to want to buy a Roku TV category, we want to make Roku TVs better. We can make One way we can make them better is making it so that it's easy to add peripherals to your TV. So that, that's why we do it. Now, now we don't necessarily have to sell hardware. We're also, we also have a licensing program. We license our Roku. We call this the Roku Connect technology. It's available for license. And, you know, I don't know if we'll keep selling speakers or not, but in the early days, we felt like it was important to just show, to build a good product. Like, this is how it should work. This is, you know, demonstrate, like, what's a great consumer experience? And then we'll continue to, we'll license that as well. But so, our goal is to, is to make Roku TV a better TV. That's why we're doing it. So are there other peripherals? that you can think of that will enhance my, my TV watching experience? And sure. You're telling me about them in advance so I, so I can write about them but also not purchase someone else's product instead? Uh, well, remote controls are an obvious one. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, for example, you didn't mention it, but the wireless speakers actually come with a new form factor remote control, which is a wireless remote control in sort of a puck form factor. It looks like a, you know, like an Amazon Echo or something or a Google Mini, and but it's battery-powered. So you can put it on your kitchen counter uh, you know, you don't have to plug it in, and you can talk to it and say, "Hey, you know, hey, you know, Roku, play." Uh, actually, it, it uses a button. It's not far field. So you press the button. You say, "You know, play music on my TV," and your Roku TV turns on and music starts playing. So it's another way to enhance. It. A lot of people listen to music on their TV, yeah. so it's an, another way to make it easier to have a better TV experience. And that's a peripheral. That's a wireless remote peripheral. What's what else is coming? Uh, <laughs> we don't talk about future products. All right, so you, you're not going to explain the roadmap to me? You're not going to lay it out in this podcast? Our secret roadmap? No, we're not going to discuss that. All right, come back again. We'll go over the roadmap. Anthony, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to see you again, and thanks for having me. Anthony, thank you for coming on the podcast, and thanks to you guys for listening. Before we go, one more time, if you like this podcast, even if you don't, but especially if you like it, tell someone else about it. Thank you. Thanks again to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Fox Media. Bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to my editor, Joel Robbie, and my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week. Hey, this is Jason Del Rey from Recode. I'm the commerce editor here, so I write a lot about where and how people are shopping today. This September in New York City, I'm putting together a live event about those questions, and I'd love for you to be there. It's called Code Commerce, and I'm going to be on stage with Recode's Kara Swisher, interviewing some of the most important people in the e-commerce and retail industries. We'll be talking to entrepreneurs and executives from companies like Instacart, Macy's, Square, Instagram, Crate & Barrel, Glossier, and more. In addition to the interviews, your ticket to Code Commerce also gets you into some special behind-the-scenes tours at Casper, Macy's, PayPal, Flight Club, and a few others. Once again, the name of the event is Code Commerce, and it's taking place September 17th and 18th in New York City. You can learn more and register now at recode.net slash events. <laughs>